Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. Today we're talking on Great Big History Podcast about pop culture around the world post-1950. And we start with Europe. Europe's poverty equaled the cultural renaissance. And that should sound weird because... You usually don't get renaissances and expansion of culture in poverty. It usually is wealth. Well, Europe was devastated by the war. Every country except for Switzerland and Sweden had taken part at some point in it. And most of these countries had had armies roaming around it, destroyed their cities with bombs, uh, murdered lots of their people. And Europe was faced with a problem of, well, we don't have money. We have to, we have to spend money to rebuild, but people still want entertainment. People still want culture. They didn't want to give up on Western civilization. And so what you got was a new brand of artists, those who had to do more with less and those who had to create innovations. And this is in many ways the story of art post-1950 is the idea that it is the poor downtown artist in the burned-out loft who's making the new art. It's not the well-to-do. It's not the well-financed. But real innovation, real art is coming from um, the scrappier parts of the city. We're going to see that in New York, in um, Chelsea, and in the Bowery, and in the Village, of course. Those are the famous parts. And then what happened is they became trendy neighborhoods. Uh, wealthier middle class people started to move in and pushed all those artists out. And those, those artists went to Brooklyn. And now they're getting pushed out of Brooklyn. So... Um, but that wasn't true before. You, you wanted financing. You needed money in order to be an artist. And so you usually went for patronage. The great painters of the Renaissance of 1500 to at least 1850, 1850 to 1900 is are really people who, who, if they didn't have money themselves, they glammed on to moneyed forces. But Europe now has an issue, and that issue is a lack of money. It's been used up. And so you had to do more with less. You get less you get more innovation. And what comes out of this is the French New Wave. Four hundred blows, breathless, Jules et Jim. These movies that come out that are shot on the cheap. Handheld, one camera. They have few actors. They're easy sets. These are the original indie movies. They're people talking. If you, for those of you who are listening to the audio on the video, there's a scene from uh, Breathless, I think. And it's, or is it 400 Blows? I think it's Breathless. And it's two characters walking down the street in Paris. 
And one looks at the other and goes, what are you looking at? And the other one goes, nothing, just looking at you. It's just a conversation and they're filming it. Why? Because it's cheap. It's easy to do. You shoot it right there on the street while people are at work. Britain won the war. And so that's, that's, so, um, this French new wave is going to set the standard and American directors in the seventies are going to kind of discover it and be blown away. Um, but a lot of it is simple conversations. They're indie films. They're two people in a room talking about life and that's what it is. And that's going to be movies in the seventies. That's going to be movies again in the nineties. Uh, when you get a new generation of people who don't have money, but they have technology, they got a camera, they have a few down and out actors out of acting school and whatnot. And you're like, hey, let's make a movie. Uh, what do you what do you want to do? Uh, what do you want to make it about? Well, we'll we'll like in Swingers, we'll literally have two dudes sitting there playing video games, talking about what they're going to do tonight. How about that? And we'll see what happens. And. That was new. You didn't have the big sets. You didn't have the big stages. You didn't have the big crews. You can do it with a few people. And some technology. Now, Britain is different. And Britain's pop culture post-war is going to be emphasized by James Bond. Is the example I'm going to use. See, Britain won the war. And that meant, even though Britain was now poor, it meant it couldn't, it wasn't defeated. It didn't feel defeated. It had, it was the one country who was in World War II from the beginning until the end and won. So they had every reason to be proud of that. The problem is, is that very clearly, the British Empire was fading. It wasn't able to hold on to India, 1947, as we discussed. Um, and India itself, the British India, broke up into pieces. Britain lost its control in the Middle East, leaving Palestine. And again, that broke up and immediately went into wars. Uh, the Pax Britannia, the, the great British peace of the last century from 1815 to 1915, um, was over and the question was just how violent an end would it be but there was no doubt it was over britain would lose um and so what do you do well you had they had one you know so they had beat the nazis they had beat germany and that's where james bond comes in british culture British style, British civilization was still better than the American money. And if you read any of the James Bond books, the first couple books, there's a heavy emphasis on the Americans. The Americans have unlimited money. James Bond is constantly doing things and he's like, I'm out of money. And then an American CIA agent shows up and says, hey, how about I give you lots more money? And James Bond goes, are you sure? And he's like, I'm an American. What else am I going to do with it? We have so much money. 
But what we don't have is style, class, and sophistication. And so it was, it's a, James Bond is a way for the British to feel better about themselves. One Brit in a tux with a gun and a car can seduce and save the world. You don't need armies. You don't need nukes. You don't need giant empire. You just need Sean Connery in a tux playing Baccarat and you can save the world. So it's, it's, it's cheap. Like the French New Wave, James Bond movies are not cheap by the, you know, they're campy, but they're not cheap. They're selling a fantasy. But the idea is that no one would buy the British Foreign Legion going off to go save the world. No, it's one guy. You don't even see the other double O's. They make references to them once in a while. And they're like, oh, yeah, there's some double O's. And like, oh, okay. Like, in theory, there could be a hundred. There could, well, there can't be a hundred. There could only be nine double O's. But the, uh, it's, it's like one guy can do it. And so it plays into that post-war feeling of fantasy. We can still run the world. We can still save the world. But we're doing it in a more efficient manner. And we're doing it mostly by British, the superiority of British culture. American, the Americans have money, but they have no manners. They're gross. They have no sophistication. Brits, on the other hand, have all of that. That brings us to Igmar Bergman and the Scandinavians. Scandinavian cinema. Now, Sweden was a, was with Switzerland, the only country not to suffer from the Second World War. They basically became a colony, an imperialized economic colony of Nazi Germany, but no armies marched through Sweden. And so it has a different relationship to the post-World War than France does. In fact, Sweden is on the border. Sweden helped uh, Finland fight the Soviets during the Winter War in the late 30s and the early 40s. And so it's very clear that Sweden, a country of 8 to 9 million people at this time, is small in a world dominated by two gigantic powers. The Soviet Union with, a, what, 180 million people in it? The United States with 150 million people in it at this time in 1950, 1960? Um, both have massive armies. It's clear Swedes, this is, uh, the Swedes have to find a new role to play. And so cinema, the Igmar Bergman uses cinema. Bergman is B-E-R-G-M-A-N, Bergman, mountain man. Uh, Ingmar, I-N-G-M-A-R is that cinema can ask big questions. The most famous of Swedish movies that come out of this period is The Seventh Seal, which is about life and struggling against life or struggling against death. You know, death, you know, the, the idea of playing chess. And it's the famous saying, uh, as long as I resist, as long as I resist you, death, I live. 
that life is this struggle where either you, you give in and you die or you keep fighting. And they use classical art symbols. And this is the part that makes Scandinavian movies like people are like, oh, I can't, don't understand. There's all this symbolism in it. But the symbolism is tied to classical art. Classical themes. The idea is that you could use film for story making, for myth making. So that it didn't have to be just entertainment. It could try to be art. And it could use the symbolisms of art. Now, that's not to say Emar Bergman is the first one to try to do this. Um, but what he does is create a new language for film that intellectuals can get those symbols, get those deeper meanings, um, that there's more to it than on the surface. A rose is not just a rose. A rose means something else. And if you've ever watched Game of Thrones or Lost or any TV show that hides, that has layers in it, the leftovers, um, in which the book somebody's reading is, a, is by a philosopher whose philosophy is a certain kind of postmodernism, and that gives you a hint of where the show is going. That starts with Ingmar Bergman. The idea that film could be intellectual in its story-making. That it could have these layers. It could be an onion. And the U.S., in the U.S., he's going to be huge in the 70s. Those 70s filmmakers... Scorsese and um, even George Lucas, but um, the guys who will do, well, the dark urban movies of the 70s, from Coppola to, um, I can't even think of them at the moment, but Those movies try to speak deeper than just what's on the surface. And that inspiration, that idea that you could do that came from Scandinavian cinema. That brings us to Bollywood. Indian filmmaking. India. The idea of Bollywood, why Bollywood is important is the idea that Indians, non-Westerners, can make culturally relevant cinema. Sure, the Japanese will do some movies, and especially their anime movies will be big. But Japanese material is really a closed-off and relatively small industry. Bollywood, on the other hand, is massive. Bollywood makes way more movies than Hollywood and Europe combined. And the idea is that we can do this. Now, it makes sense that it would be India. India is probably the most Europeanized in a lot of ways of the, of the colonies that get their independence. They got their independence in 47. 
before the wave of the 50s and the 60s in Africa and East Asia. Uh, it's a big country. It is an old country. So it has a long tradition of cultural innovation. And the idea is we can do this. Westerners, Europeans and Americans are making cinema and people going to see it. We can do it ourselves. And we could tell their stories. We could tell Western stories. We could tell our stories. But we could also tell Western ideas. The example in the what I'll show in class, the example in the video is Pride and Prejudice. That's a Western story. And what Indian um, cinema does is it takes it, it takes its themes, it reapplies it to Indian families, and boom, you've got an Indian Pride and Prejudice. It's a reverse colonization. It's, it is, we can take your culture and convert it. Instead of having to absorb it and become British, we can take British culture and make British culture Indian. Romeo and Juliet is a classic of this, especially in countries that have ethnic fights. So that rather than be two families, they are of different ethnicities. So they're Sunni or Shia, they're Arab, they're uh, Persian, they are Muslim or Hindu in the, in the Indian take on it. And so you get this reverse colonization. We can borrow your ideas without having to absorb them or be absorbed by them without having to become European. And that's strong. That wasn't an option in the 1800s, in the early 1900s, where the Europeans said, you are going to absorb our stuff. You're going to speak English. You're going to speak French. You're going to absorb our movies. You're going to buy our books. We are going to send you to university in England and France to teach you stuff. Now, what Bollywood does is represent a cultural strength. We can pick and choose. And we can convert it. We can change it. We can make it our own. The same is going on in Nollywood. N-O-L-L-Y-W-O-O-D. Oh, Bollywood, by the way, is B-O-L-L-Y-W-O-O-D. Nollywood is the Nigerian African movie scene that has exploded in the last 20, 25 years. And the reason why is the cost of technology has come down. One is it's cheap to get cameras and with digitalization, it's now cheap to you don't film is the most expensive part of movies or where it was. Now it's not anymore, especially with digitalization or first video and then digitalization. So the cost of technology came down Two is education spread so that anyone can make movies. You can go to school. There are schools for making movies in the West, but then they open up schools in Nigeria, in Africa, in India. So education spreads. Anyone can make movies. Nollywood actually makes so many movies and has such a um, 
worldwide market, they're second to only to Bollywood in numbers of movies produced. Now, you'll make the argument, you can make the argument, well, they're not very good, but that's the exact point is they're not constrained. It's the idea that it didn't exist before. And now the technology and the education allows for ordinary people to say, I'm going to become a movie maker. I'm going to become an actor. And you can. And you have an audience. You have a market. That that market's not dominated by the more big-budget professional movies of England, France, of America. And what Nollywood especially tries to do is deal with kind of like India. India deals with its colonial past. What what Nollywood is trying to deal, deal with is its ethnic diversity within the country. The idea that cinema can relate unifying values in a diverse country. Nigeria was made by England, by the British. They smushed it together out of all different peoples. Those peoples spent a whole lot of their histories fighting each other, not getting along with each other, not living together. We talked somewhere earlier about Nigeria being essentially two different ecosystems, uh, economies. Uh, there's the Muslim north that's connected to the Sahara and to the trade routes of North Africa. And then there's the Christian south connected to the oceans and Europe, and the oceanic trade. Those are two different places that are not together. And now they're unified. And so what Nollywood tries to do is show that cinema can tell universal themes, under universe, unifying themes that we all have as Nigerians. That Nollywood is trying to make a country out of entertainment by showing what we have in common. And that the things that we don't have in common, we can be better than, we can overcome. So, cinema also connects immigrants to home culture. Indian and Pakistani and Bangladeshis in New York City can watch Indian, Pang Pakistani and Bangladeshi movies. English-speaking Africans in London and in America can watch movies from home, can be tied to their culture. The idea is to maintain a culture in a larger foreign culture, which wasn't possible before. Look at your ancestors, my ancestors, my Irish, German, Hungarian, Italian, they all became Anglo. They all became white. They all became American, but white American, Anglo-American. I don't speak any German. I don't speak any Italian. That happened in three generations. What technology and cinema does is allow immigrants to be connected to home in ways they couldn't a hundred years ago. The way satellite TV keeps them connected to news at home. So what are our results? Stories and cultures continue to thrive. Despite the war, despite the civil wars, despite decolonization, stories and cultures continue to thrive. Technology can ease access to consumption and to creation. The VHS allows 
people to watch movies at home. Even if they were made 10,000 miles away. The VHS camera allows you to make a movie that you can distribute. Identity is the most important part. This is part three, that identity is the most important part of culture strength. Who are we? What do we believe and why? And that's, you see this a lot in movies, trying to tell us who we are. What do we believe? Why do we believe these things? It's why, why American men love the Clint Eastwood cowboy movies. Love John Wayne cowboy movies. It's one man against an army of bad guys. And who wins? The one guy. The tough guy with a gun. So since 1950, the world has gotten better, richer, more educated, more equal, more more democratic, more optimistic. It is the best time in human history to be alive. On average. All right. Thank you very much.